Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Mike Todorovic. I'm, I'm the other host. And what's your name? Matthew. Well, nice to meet you, Matthew. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Matthew James Lorraine Barton, is, is that it? Franklin. Franklin, of yeah, course. You always miss Franklin. Always miss Franklin. Um, today, we're talking about something extremely important. You probably would have seen one of our latest episodes was on blood pressure. Listen to, not seen. Correct. Mm. And I hope that you've listened to it uh, because in that episode, we define what blood pressure was and its importance in the body. But now we're talking about what happens when it just carries on a little bit too long. Excessive. It's excessive, you know, sort of like hanging out o- with Matt. Overachieving. In short bursts, so to speak, Matt's okay. But if he hangs around for too long, it can be detrimental. And this is- <laughs> to your health. That's right. Yeah. And this is- Blood pressure, hypertension specifically. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to define hypertension, talk about the different ways it's it's measured and categorized, uh, and then we're going to take a look at the pathophysiology or cause of hypertension. And then when it comes to treatment or management, that's going to be another episode because there's a whole range of really important drugs we need to talk about called the antihypertensives. But to begin, we need to define what hypertension is. Maddie, what is hypertension? Simplistically, just a high amount of pressure within your arterial system. Okay, and that Hi- pressure is coming from your blood? Hyper just means high or raised tension um, pressure, pretty okay. much. Okay. Um, so this is pertaining to, uh, when we talk about hypertension, this is just an, an excessive amount of blood pressure within your arterial bed. And it's measured, it's not just 
in one moment. It's not like if right now I took your blood pressure mm. and it was really high, I'd say, oh, you have hypertension. I could say that right now you've got elevated blood pressure. Or you could be hypertensive. Yeah, but, but you wouldn't be a, a patient who has hypertension. Maybe not get the, def- the sorry, the diagnosis of yes. hypertension. So when do you get that? Oh, I think technically you need to measure it at least twice and you need to do it on separate um, times. Right. So it can't just be at one sitting. So maybe the doctor would measure the patient, see that they're hypertensive, measure it again just to make sure the machine's not broken or something's going wrong. And then that reconfirms the first one and then they might invite them back two weeks later. For dinner? <laughs> no. Well, oh. no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> and, and, and if that was again hypertensive, then yeah. they would make a more probable diagnosis that they have hypertension. And it's not uncommon for GPs or doctors to get their patients to record their own blood pressure at home. Yep. Right? And we'll, and we'll talk about that because sometimes there are conditions or times where a person might get a bit anxious and stressed by having people measure their blood pressure and that might actually bump it up yeah. and give them a f- kind of false positive. So I think one of the first things we need to talk about is the blood pressure values uh, and then we can talk about the blood pressure equation because everything we're going to talk about is going to refer back to that blood pressure equation. But just remember that when you're measuring blood pressure, there's two values, the top value and the bottom value. The top value, Matt, is? As in the name? Yep. Systolic. Perfect. And what's the bottom value? Diastolic. And what does systole or systole mean? Uh, basically, I think it just correlates to the point of when the left ventricle contracts. What about diastole or diastole? When it relaxes or it's filling. Cool. So that then gives you an indication as to what those numbers are representing. So the systolic value is basically saying that when the left ventricle of the heart contracts and pumps blood out into the arterial system, there's going to be a high degree of pressure or force that that blood places on the walls of those vessels. And then when you measure the blood pressure under systole, that's going to be the systolic value. So when the heart contracts, that's the highest value in the arterial system. But saying that you're not, presumably you're not measuring this pressure in their aorta, right? Or in the, the first vessel of where it comes out the left ventricle. Not at least when you're in your doctor's office or at home. <laughs> Because that would be quite invasive. Yes. So, so how do you do it? The you, most common like location. The, arm or the most right? common location would be yeah, around the arm. The well, it's not really the upper arm. I think it's just the arm. Yeah. So um, you're essentially measuring the brachial artery there, which, in relative to your aorta, is only maybe twenty centimeters away. So it's not a huge distance to travel. One of the early branches of the aorta. Yep. Yep. And so, by understanding what the pressure is in that vessel it's almost guaranteed it would be the same as what's coming out of your left ventricle. That's right. So you've got the systolic value, which is representative of how well the heart is contracting, basically. Yep. And then the next value, the one underneath, is the blood pressure of when the heart is relaxing. Yep. Which, for me, didn't make sense for a long time. I spoke about it in the blood pressure episode, right? Until last week. It didn't make sense to you, right? Well, no, no. <laughs> incorrect. Just, I mean, it was maybe a decade ago I sort of figured this out. Um Maybe I wasn't paying attention in class. Uh, maybe a bit over a decade. Anyway, I didn't understand why there is a second blood pressure value that's representative of when the heart's relaxing. Yeah. But in actual fact, it's not representative of 
the heart when it's relaxing. It's just the pressure that's happening in the arterial system while the heart's relaxing. Because if you think about it, when the left-hand side of the heart contracts and pushes blood into the arterial system, those arteries, particularly those large arteries, they're really elastic. They stretch. So they're not like stiff concrete pipes. They should not be. Yeah. And we will talk about what the blood pressure means if they are. But they, they're not. They, they stretch and they expand. And then when the heart relaxes, they snap back. And when they snap back, they continue to propagate blood. And that continued propagation of blood will generate another pressure. And that's the diastolic pressure, which means the diastolic value is representative of how elastic or the elastic recoil of your arteries. Okay. So the systolic is representative of how well your heart's contracting and the diastolic is representative of how well your large arteries are recoiling. So okay. how elastic they are. Yeah. And okay. I think that's a good way of thinking yep. about it. Yep. Okay. The, the values, what are these values? Well, that's just a measurement of pressure and I guess you could use any form of measurement in a way like you don't have to necessarily well what we measure it in is millimeters of mercury yeah and but, do you know why well i guess that was just the unit of measurement at the time for pressure so in i think 1628 okay some bloke william harvey yeah, des- yeah. described blood flow through the heart and the blood vessels and everything. We're like, oh, okay, we understand everything we need to know about the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Wrong. 300 years later was when we understood blood pressure. Oh, okay. And we actually discovered a reliable method to measure blood pressure. And this was basically taking an artery. So, sti- when, so where are, what period of time are we now? 300 years after 1600s. Okay, so 900s. Early 1900s. Okay. So it is pretty recent. That's right. Okay. They, they, you basically stick a tube into an artery, mm-hmm. connect that tube to a cylinder yep. that contains some mercury, yeah. and then have a look and see how much does that mercury displace. And is it, was it mercury just because they used that for other things like barometric pressure and all sorts of things like well, that? Well, I think they knew the temperature. that- that yes, I think one, it was a universal unit of measurement okay. using mercury, and two, they probably knew that if they used anything else that was less dense, uh, they probably don't have a, a tall enough tube to yep. measure the pressure of okay. the. So, when that left hand side of the heart contracted and pushed the blood, it would shift or move that mercury upwards. Uh, upwards, so one hundred and twenty millimeters of mercury. Yeah, okay. so twelve centimeters. Yep. Okay, so shifted mercury up 12 centimetres. And then when we looked at the diastolic, it moved, shifted it up 80 millimetres, so eight centimetres. Yeah. Now, like you said, it could have been anything, right? Mm. Like mercury. Well, we, we sometimes do it with water, not blood pressure, but we sometimes measure pressure mm. in other things of the body. So with, if we measured with blood centimetres pressure. With centimetres of water. If we measured blood pressure with water, uh, mercury off the top of my head is 13 times more dense than water. So. That means your, and you can, audience, you can correct me because I don't have this written in front of me. Your systolic value would be 1.5 meters over one meter of, of, which is water. literally your height. Yeah. <laughs> which so. one? The 1. 1.5 meter? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. still too short. <laughs> or the one meter? Ah, both, both quite short. Um, so, yeah. So, basically, if your blood pressure is 120 millimeters of mercury over 80 millimeters of mercury, that is the same as saying your blood pressure is 1.5 meters of water over one meter of water. And um, But it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is we just needed a unit of measurement to know what the blood pressure yep. was. And generally speaking, 
120 over 80 is the what we term normal the normal blood pressure. Now here's the thing: normal in biology is basically a, just a value average. we use. It's yeah, they'll you know we'll take a thousand people from the public, a, a thousand people who we recognise as being healthy in quotations, and measure their blood pressure and say, well. 95% of these people, their blood pressure was 120 yep. over 80-ish. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then they go, okay, we found what it is. But you can have healthy people who have elevated blood pressure above that and you can have healthy people who have blood pressure below that. Yep. But generally speaking, we're talking population-wise here, that's not the case. Anything above 120 over an extended period of time is hypertensive and anything below is, well, Two, se- two separate measurements. It's fine, yeah, yeah. but can be hypotensive depending on how low. Okay, so then when we look at the criteria for diagnosing a person with hypertension and then maybe this, the categories of seriousness, um, there's a number of different bodies, organisational bodies, institutes that give their recommendations. True. So like for instance, a fairly common one is the American Heart Association. Mm. Do you have any others that we could potentially look at? Yeah, there's the European, so like you said, American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association, I think working together. The European Society of Cardiology or the European Society of Hypertension and the International Society of Hypertension. They've all actually got relatively different values and categorizations of what they call normal and what they call stage one or stage two hypertension. Yeah. Yeah. So which one do you want to begin with? I mean, they're all pretty similar. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I would say broadly speaking, all of them will consider anything below 120 for the systolic as normal and anything below 80 80. for the diastolic as normal. The International Society of Hypertension actually brings that value of 120 up to 130 and say anything below that and anything below 85 is normal. Yep. But in saying that, <clears throat> you start to, as you go up, generally the, the increments are 10 millimetres of mercury um, for systolic and 5 millimetres of mercury for diastolic. These are sort of the increments they use as they go up for different stages, particularly the European Society of Cardiology. But generally speaking, we've got normal being less than 120 over 80. Um You've got what we call increased or high normal or pre-hypertensive. I don't yep. know what terms they necessarily use. Or just now. elevated. Or just yep. elevated as, as between 120 to 129. Yep, systolic. Systolic and- um, it's Kind of between 80 and 90. But, 80 and but, 90. But under 90, the yeah. systolic. Yep. Or, yeah, that's right. But then we start hitting stages of recognized hypertension. Yep. Um, and there's, broadly there's stage one and stage two. I like the American um, Heart Association uh, guidelines. And so what they've got is for stage one, it's between 130 and 139 yep. for systolic and 80 to 89 for diastolic. Yep. Uh, and stage two? Basically 140 and higher. And what's the diastolic for that? 90 and higher. 90 and higher. So yep. if somebody's 140 over 90, yep. they, they would be recognised as a stage two hypertensive. Yeah, they would definitely be considered hi- hypertensive or having hypertension if you did it twice on two different time points. Right, right. Yep. Because I think people should know that, you know, if you if you are stressed or you're doing exercise or you're about to do an exam and someone took your blood pressure, it's probably unsurprising that yeah. it would be up in a hypertensive range. Yep. 
But after that exam or stressful situation or exercise, it should go back down to a normal level. That's right. And that's what's important here. Yep. All right. So and we've and got- I'll, just, I'll just add one final kind of subcategory and that's yep. just isolated systolic. So this would be- So what's this referring to? This would be um, an elevated systolic, but your diastole is in normal range. So this would oh. be for individuals that would again have, you know, arguably- uh, a systolic pressure above 140, yep. but their diastole's still within the kind of 80-ish range. So what that, what that would indicate to me, because we defined earlier that systolic is a reflection of how well the heart's contracting yep. uh, and the diastolic is the elasticity of the heart. If the diastolic's normal, I would say that the vessels might, might be fine, but there might be something in regards to the force of the blood coming out of the heart maybe, and I'm just speculating here, increased fluid volume, increased re- venous return to the heart, increased ejection fraction. Well, it seems for this group of people who have isolated systolic hypertension, they fit into two broad groups. Yep. Young, very young, particularly young men, mm-hmm. and then the elderly. And, and do we know why? Well, I think the elderly is more to do with the compliance of their vessels as they get older. So wouldn't that be so... Wouldn't that also is that so is that isolated systolic hypertension or is that just widened pulse pressure? No, apparently it's isolated systolic f- for the elderly. Is yeah. interesting. Yeah. So you can have, but I think for the the younger the younger age, particularly the younger men, it's proposed one mechanism may be to do with just the kind of afterload coming out of the left ventricle into the aorta. So if there are some variations of that particular vessel, and it's maybe the diameter, the diameter of it, or just the compliance of it, mm. it kind of increases the afterload. Therefore, that the left ventricle has to generate a greater force to get it out. Past so the compliance it. is the stretchiness, right? Yeah. So, um, if so, if you have a look at the the, the blood pressure measurements, one twenty over eighty, for example, the difference between those two, what's the 80, 90, 100, 120, That's forty millimeters of mercury between systolic and diastolic in a normal individual that's the pulse pressure right yeah. right that's the difference between the two if that's widened so maybe the systolic goes up or the diastolic goes down or both then that widened pulse pressure tends to be what you're referring to right as an indication of the compliance of the vessel maybe and we know that the older you get the more stiff vessels get and therefore the wide more yep. widened pulse pressure becomes so so this isolated systolic hypertension is a widened pulse pressure and can be an indication yeah, guess, of yeah. v- vessel compliance. But it definitely would be two different mechanisms between the, the elderly and the younger. So mm, makes um, sense. I think with the elderly, like you said, there would be actual aging effects on the blood vessel wall, um, maybe less elastin, more collagen. Collagen's yep. a, a different type of protein compared to elastin, or the vessel becomes um, ingrained with things like calcium, which makes it rock-like. Okay. Yeah. So Joe Bloggs walks into a doctor's office. Is this a joke? No. Oh, okay. This is, I'm giving you a a case scenario to lead you into the next point, right? So Joe Bloggs walks into a, his, his GP's office and is saying that, um, you know, he's experiencing a whole range of issues, you know, his dizziness, exhaustion, whatever it may be. And his doc's like, okay, these are pretty nonspecific symptoms. Let's measure your blood pressure. 
And he goes, I, I, you know, he looks in his notes and he goes, I remember last two times we came in and looked at your blood pressure, they were pretty high. Let's take a look. And he measures it and goes, okay, your blood pressure is still, it's, it's 140 over 90. You've got this elevated blood, blood pressure, pressure yep. right? I'm going to say you've got hypertension and it's probably likely that we need to uh, give you some antihypertensive meds or think about lifestyle or dietary changes. Now, the type of hypertension that this man may have, firstly, are there types of hypertension or is it one size fits all? Does somebody come in and they go, well, they got hypertension, done and dusted, chucks, you know, lifestyle changes, environment changes maybe, and some meds? Or can they hypothesize and say, well, there's actually a subset of different types of hypertension. You may have this one or this one. How does it work? Are there different yeah. types? There are different types. The two main categories. Yep. There's one that's called primary or essential. I'll get to why they called it essential in okay. a second. And then there's secondary, which means it's due to something else. So some other underlying comorbidity or disease state or disorder that's happening in the body which is causing the hypertension. But the primary- And if you stop that, you'd stop the hypertension? Correct. Right. Yep. yep. But, but the not pro- with primary. But not with primary. The primary, which is actually in, is the most common type. So that would be 90 to 95% of individuals with hypertension would have a primary category. They'd be in the primary category. Oh, so most people with hypertension most are people, primary. Yep. And, and so the reason why it's called essential is because, I, I, I don't know- the dates here, but historically it was known as as we age, our blood pressure would go up and they thought that it, be, it was essential to have an increase in blood pressure oh. to perfuse your organs. Oh, so they thought it was normal. They thought it was normal. Right. So they thought it was essential to get an increased blood pressure as you got older. Does that mean they didn't do anything about no, it? No, no. That's as far as I looked. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Now, but, but saying this, you know, um, with Joe Bloggs as an example. Yeah. Um, Is that his name? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was Joe okay. Bloggs. Uh, basically, a quarter of the population fit into this group of people just going along in their everyday life, not aware of having hypertension. Yes. In and, actual- that's, and that's why it was known as, or it's known as the silent killer because so many people have it without being aware of it. That, that's right. I mean, if you look at the US specifically, and we're not in the US, we're in Australia, but I think the stats are comparable, is that 50% of adults in the US have hypertension. 50% of those, so the quarter that, that you stated, are undiagnosed. They don't know they've got hypertension, yeah. like you said, the silent killer. And of those that do know they've got hypertension, 50% of those, so again, a, a quarter um, in total, are being treated inappropriately. Not in the sense that malpractice or anything like that, but the the treatment is not sufficient to mitigate their hypertension. Now, people might be saying, who cares? Why do we care? Hypertension is a huge killer. Yeah. I mean, it is the, hypertension is the most modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So in 2017, 10.4 million people died due to elevated or high blood pressure. Yeah, and so with that, um, just to reinforce that point, if you have hypertension and it's poorly managed, your the likelihood of you dying from heart is one in two. Likelihood of me dying from, from a heart. heart heart complications oh, or yeah. ischemic heart disease. Oh yeah, is what? Uh, so one in two people who 
aren't managing their hypertension, wow. they will, will die, one in two of them will die from ischemic heart disease or one in three will die from a stroke. Okay, so... So it's, so it's, so a, huge, it's a huge thing to consider and it's something that we really need to address. It's probably one of the reasons why when you go see your GP for a checkup, they pretty much always do your blood pressure. And just with that, we, we kind of alluded to um, white coat syndrome. So, so while, what is that? Well, whilst, again, let's just keep on Joe Bloggs here for a second. Um, if he, he may go to the doctor and he may just become anxious because of, oh. I'm at the doctor. I'm at the doctor. Yeah. What's he going to say? That's right. Is he going to tell so me I've got cancer? He, I don't even know how he knows. Can he see it in me? Oh, no. What's going on? He's going so he to say i He may just all of a sudden get this stress response. Yeah. And then so uh, between 10 to 30% of individuals have this phenomenon where they when they get measured by a health professional their blood pressure will go up yeah so that sometimes again leads to a, a false positive outcome mm. and so probably the most accurate way of diagnosing blood pressure if you could it could be done is to do at home measurements yeah or ongoing 24 hour where you just have a blood pressure cuff going up and down throughout a 24 hour period right and that would give a good indication of how your blood pressure is throughout the whole day but converse to that, there's a, another syndrome called mask syndrome. Oh, what's that? It's the opposite. So you actually actually go down in front of the health professional and it's normally higher. So it, Why is that? Is that a vagal response or is that because people are more re- some maybe, people are more relaxed than that? I yeah, I don't know. But that's a, a reverse I visit my GP so much, it's, that's probably me. <laughs> my BP is always quite But again, I guess, a, I guess a take-home point here, either in the white coat or the mask, is probably the best way to do it would be a kind of a, an ongoing blood pressure um, measurement when you are in periods of relaxation at home and so forth. You can forth. buy them from the chemist yeah. or pharmacy pretty pretty cheap and yeah. easy. All right. So so going back to Joe Bloggs. Um, in essential? The, yes. What, yep. So essential being primary, and that's about 90 to 95% of individuals fit this category. Mm-hmm. Basically this means we're not 100% sure what's causing it, um, but a lot of people sit into this particular category. All right. And the secondary, you said something else is causing the hypertension. And if we stop that thing, we stop the hypertension. Yeah. But that only accounts for what, 5 to, to 10% to 10%, of yeah. total cases. Yeah. All right. What's next? What about like, are there, before we go into the patho, are there risk factors? Are there things that put people into risk groups? Like are there certain people within the population that are more at risk of developing hypertension? Yeah, there would be. Um, Particularly when we look at the primary causes, there's a whole lot of environmental things that lead to the likelihood of developing hypertension. But again, we're not 100% sure of what the underlying mechanism is. So when you look at risk factors, Mm. it would just be things like stress, obesity, smoking, physical inactivity, salt consumption, and then just ageing. Genetics. And genetics, yeah. Did you know that the... the the first time they associated high blood pressure with increased risk of mortality, do you know when this happened? Early 1900s, they were analysing insurance data. And so they're like, oh, this is interesting. When the blood pressure rises, people are more likely to die. And then they went, oh, blood pressure also rises with age. Oh, wait a minute, blood pressure also rises with weight gain. And they started to notice all these effects. And then since then, thousands of studies have come out correlating higher blood pressure with increased risk of mortality. And so that's why 
all these risk factors start to come out and become apparent, all the yeah. ones that, that you stated. But, you know, g- generally speaking, you know, the things that are going to play around with um, your yeah, risk yeah. of uh, having hypertension would be the environmental factors, yeah. the ones that you state, obesity, physical inactivity, excess sodium, chronic stress, systemic inflammation, which can be due to uh, immune disturbances, your gut microbiota, even periodontitis, so teeth issues. Teeth. Yep. Well, wow. having a pre uh, preterm birth, um, or even having a low birth weight, and uh, air pollution as well. Strangely, they also said noise pollution, but I didn't look into that, and I'm not sure what the mechanism maybe, maybe stress and sleep. Yeah. So they're environmental factors. These are changeable things yeah. potentially, yeah. depending on your socioeconomic status. They sure. may or may not be changeable. Yeah. There's the genetic factors, like like you alluded to. Which so we can get to it. Do we do we want to go through with a couple of these? Um, I just was going to say, just broadly, I was going to say, you know, environmental factors, genetic factors, and social determinants are the three big things that increase your risk. So genetic factors, there are genetic factors associated yeah. with hypertension. So it tends to cluster in in families and having a family history. Oh, your yeah, positive family history is yeah, it's a big one, significant, right? yeah. And um, you know, if you have a positive family history, you're four, you have a fourfold greater chance of developing hypertension. Yeah. Um, and then there's the social determinants. So coming from a low socioeconomic uh, area and having a, a, a coming from a low income country, in today's day and age, that contributes to 88% of high blood pressure deaths, 88%. So in developed worlds or middle to higher level income countries, the blood pressure on average has steadily decreased over time. However, they haven't in these other countries. They're becoming higher and higher and higher. Um, and so 88% of blood pressure related deaths are in these low income countries. So that's an important point because obviously that's going to play around with those environmental factors as well. Anyway, so these are the things that sort of bubble together, that simmer in the pot over time that can increase your risk of blood hypertension, so right. high, high blood pressure. But maybe we can now start, do you think we should start jumping into the specific what yeah. we know as specific factors. And yeah. this then leads us now to the blood pressure equation. Yeah, which I think we should just quickly run through. Although we did this in the last podcast, I think it's important just to- Matt, you're making the assumption that people listen, listen to, it. to yeah. all of our podcasts when it's highly likely that no one's listening to this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, blood pressure equation. People okay. hear equation, they freak out, right? This is an easy one. Yeah, it's like two it's- times two, right? Pretty much, oh. pretty much, because there's only two parts of this you need to... With a couple of subparts. Correct. Don't worry about those ones, guys. So blood pressure, BP, equals yep. cardiac output times oh. peripheral vascular resistance or... Systemic vascular resistance. Yeah. I think or, systemic or vascular resistance vascular is what's resistance. commonly used. Wait, okay. We'll probably confuse you. Peripheral vascular resistance, systemic vascular resistance, total peripheral resistance... Let's just say resistance. Okay. Let's just blood say vessel, resistance in vessel. the blood vessel. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So say the equation again. BP, blood pressure, equals cardiac output times PVR. <laughs> just say the resistance. No. Resistance. Resistance. Resistance in the blood vessel. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So- <laughs> okay. Start with cardiac output. All right. So this is basically how much blood leaves the heart per minute. That's right, which is pretty easy to calculate because yep. you go, well, how many times does the heart beat in a minute and how much blood does it does each beat eject? Yep. And then you multiply the two. So you got like on average 70 beats per minute and with every beat you eject around about 70 milliliters of blood. So, so that's five liters of blood. Will, every minute. Would leave an average heart per minute. Or one side of a heart. Well, yeah, 
Well, yes, that's right. Yep. Yep. Every minute. Yep. Okay, so we've got two factors now in the cardiac output, heart rate and stroke volume, the yep. volume ejected with each beat. Yep. All right, so there's those two factors. Now, just quickly before we move on to the vascular resistance, yeah. there are things that can affect heart rate, Yeah. right? The speed of the heart. Yep like the sympathetic nervous system, for example. So keep that in your mind. There are things that can affect the stroke volume. So how much blood is ejected from the heart. And this can include things like the contractility of the heart, so how well it contracts. And how much is loaded into the heart. Yes, so blood volume. Blood volume. Just think blood volume. Or blood return, yep. All right. Now, vascular resistance. Yep. What is this? This is just the essentially the diameter of the pipes. Not... Completely, but mostly it's just the diameter, how big, how wide the pipes are. I think for this discussion, that's all we need to yep. say. So if you narrow the diameter of a blood vessel, it's harder for blood to move through. So yep. you increase the resistance. Yep. And if you increase the resistance, it's an equation, right? You increase resistance, you increase blood pressure. Um, so at the end of the day, the blood pressure equation, which is blood pressure equals cardiac output times vascular resistance, Cardiac output has those subcategories of heart rate and stroke volume, which is sympathetic nervous system, contractility, and blood volume. If you increase any of those things, you increase blood pressure. Increase sympathetic nervous system activation, increase blood pressure. Increase contractility of the heart, increase blood pressure. Increase volume of circulating blood or volume of blood in the heart, increase blood pressure. And then same goes with the resistance. If you increase the resistance in the vessel by constriction of the blood vessel, you increase blood pressure. Now, everything we're going to talk about now in regards to the causes or the pathophysiology of hypertension- Works off this yeah, formula. Throw it back to that. Keep yeah. that in your mind. Write it down and go, okay, how does this increase blood pressure through one or more of these particular mechanisms? Yeah. So let's now take a look at the possible causes of primary or essential hypertension. Maybe we should say um, hypothesized- complications rather than causes. I mean, if they're known causes, then they're really going to be secondary, right? I suppose that's true because then if you can stop it, you stop the hypertension, yeah. which is the definition of secondary. Yep. Cool. Okay. So, so, and this sort of feeds into the possible pathophysiology of hypertension. And so broadly speaking, there's, there's many different ways that you can classify this, but we're going to have a look at factors associated with the following topics, right? So, the kidney and body fluid volumes, how that affects hypertension. Uh, the vasculature of the body and how that is involved in hypertension. The central nervous system and how that's, and peripheral nervous system and how that's involved in hypertension. Uh, and also sodium handling and how that's involved in hypertension. And so they're sort of the topics we're going to cover for primary. And then yep. we're going to move on and have a look at some of the known causes for secondary hypertension. Sounds good. So- Let's start, which one of those did you want to start with? Let's start with the nervous system. All right. Because I've got sympathetic nervous system specifically. You've got one? Good. So yeah. do I. Yeah. So I think that would fit well within that particular category. Awesome. So we know the the equation. We went through the equation. Um, and when we look at the sympathetic nervous system, we know that this has a particular role in the stress response or the fight and flight response. And we know what what kind of bodily reactions we will, we want to see from our body when this part of the nervous system is activated. Yeah. And so this is, would be times when you would be releasing adrenaline, noradrenaline, and you could kind of 
suppose what would be the result if you release these hormones into your body. Yeah, I tell students that if, if the sympathetic nervous system gets activated to keep you alive in that moment, right? So think yeah. about, all right, if I'm in the worst scenario possible, what structures of my body do I need to sort of activate? And what structures of my body do I need to inhibit to keep me alive in that moment? Yep. And it's going to be about redirecting blood to certain places, uh, increasing the pressure of that blood to certain tissues, You know, making sure more light gets into my eyes so I can see around me, I can breathe more air in and out of my body, you know, all those types of things. I move the blood away from my skin and deeper to the muscles and so forth. You know? So these are things that we want to do. And that's yeah. all the sympathetic nervous system yeah. response. And so that's going to be coming from the, the brain. Yeah. Uh, predominantly controlled centrally, by centrally the controlled, yeah. hypothalamus. Yeah. So if you're an individual where your sympathetic drive was slightly ramped up, that means that you're more likely to be in a state of a sympathetic response, which, you know, things as you'd expect to see is a greater cardiac output because your heart rates might be a little bit quicker you may have a bit more contractility in your heart. That overall, what that means is you've got a greater cardiac output. So that means straight away it works to blood pressure. Yeah. And we also know that these hormones that are released in a sympathetic drive is going to play around with the diameter of the pipes. So that's also going to have an effect on arterial resistance. So I don't really think we need to go much more there. Well, what I wanted to add is that obviously the sympathetic nervous system is going to have – a whole bunch of efferents. So neurons exiting the central nervous system going to target organs. And the two major or three major target organs we need to highlight here associated with blood pressure. One is going to be the heart. So sympathetic nervous system is going to speak to the sinoatrial node and the atrioventricular node of the heart. So that's part of the conduction system. So it speeds the heart rate up. Remember heart rate was one of those values in the blood pressure equation. Uh, it also talks to the myocardium, the heart muscle, and increases the contractile force. Remember, contraction was one of the uh, factors in the blood pressure equation. Uh, but it also goes to the blood vessels and pretty much tells most of the arterial uh, arterioles to constrict. And if you narrow the diameter, like you just said, you increase the resistance, increasing the blood pressure. And then finally, the sympathetic nervous system goes to the adrenal gland and tells it to release catecholamines like adrenaline and that circulates through the entire bloodstream and basically does the exact same as what we just said and amps that up. Yeah. Uh, so again, you get a further increase in, in blood pressure. Yep. The other thing is that the sympathetic nervous system travels to the kidneys and tells the kidneys to release into an important, oh, yes, renin. Yes, an important hormone, which I think leads us to the next topic, which is the kidneys and the role of the kidneys in blood pressure. Because the sympathetic nervous system does travel to the kidneys and says, hey, uh, can you release all those important hormones that you release and play around with that increases blood pressure for us? Which then begs the question, why the hell would the kidneys be responsible for regulating or increasing blood pressure? Oh, that's a question to me. That's to you, Matt. Well, there's no one else in the room, so. I thought you were asking yourself. Okay. Uh, well, oh, well, okay. well, like we said- I could la- answer it. La- last podcast, the kidney gets pretty much a fifth of blood volume at any given time. So it's yeah. a very good organ for knowing- So how a fifth much- of five litres is one litre. Yeah. So yeah. one litre a minute of blood is going to the kidneys, which are fairly small organs. So they are very well situated to- 
try to work out how much blood pressure is in the system and how much blood volume is being moved around. And if it senses that there's a problem with either the pressure or the volume that's being brought to the kidneys, it will say, look, I'm a bit unsure here. I'm a bit frightened and upset or I'm not sure what the term you're going to use or the kidneys would use. You can personify the kidneys as much (laughs) as you like. Anthropomorphize them. That's right. We better do something here to save the body. So why would the kidneys care if the blood pressure or blood volume drops? Well, one of the main functions of the kidneys is to filter blood and to filter blood it needs a a quite a big push-in pressure. So it needs a pressure to force blood through a filtration membrane. And it has to do 120 mils per minute it needs. Yeah, so it needs a, a head of steam to force you know, the plasma out of a blood vessel through a sieve to be able to filter the the blood to do its job as yeah. a, a filtering agent. And if there's not enough pressure, it can't do that filtering job. Yeah. And so the kidneys became, basically become redundant. That yeah. They've got no job to do. Got all these metabolic byproducts accumulating in the blood, which can become toxic and then yeah. quite deadly very right. quickly. And, okay. so, and so the kidney's like, oh, look, there's a problem with the pressure or the volume. We better do something here. So one of the things we can do is just chuck a chemical into the blood called renin, and that's going to do a whole lot of downstream effects which I'm not yeah. sure if you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah I think very briefly. Okay. So we've done an entire podcast yeah. on this system called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Super important, particularly when it comes to blood pressure because its entire job is think negative feedback for homeostasis. The stimulus is a drop in blood pressure or blood volume and the outcome that it elicits is an increase in blood pressure or blood volume. So basically what happens is that your kidneys will sense the drop in blood pressure or blood volume and release renin, all right? Now, it can do it a couple of ways. There's actually three ways that renin can be released. And these are all important uh, when it comes to understanding blood pressure and management of blood pressure. So first is the blood vessels that are entering the filtration units of the kidneys called afferent arterioles. If the blood pressure in those afferent arterioles has dropped, they will release renin. The blood vessels will release renin. Okay, they're called granular cells. That's That's number one. Number one. Now, if the blood pressure and blood volume is low, it means that the filtrate, so once the filter the blood, that filtrate is moving through slowly through the tubules of the nephron. That's the filtration unit of the kidneys. And if it moves through slowly through the nephron, there's more time to reabsorb things back into the body like sodium. Therefore, by the time the sodium reaches the very end of these windy tubes in the nephron, if the blood volume blood pressure is low, it means the sodium is going to be low because there's heaps of time to reabsorb it back into the body. And therefore, there are cells that pick up this drop in sodium called macular denser cells. So if the sodium is low in the tubules, it of releases renin. So that's the number two. It releases renin. And then finally, the third one is the one that we alluded to before when we finished with the nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system can innovate those JDA. granular cells to specifically release renin. Number three. Three. So now renin's released. Renin circulates through the whole body. It's circulating through the bloodstream of the body and it comes across something called angiotensinogen. It's all in the name. Angio means blood vessel, tensin means pressure. So it's some sort of an ogen, angiotensinogen, means it's inactive, needs to be activated. And that's what renin does. So renin chops off that O-G-E-N and turns it into angiotensin-1. Angiotensinogen actually originates from the liver. 
just as mm-hmm. you, yep. if you wanted to know. So it turns it into angiotensin 1, which does bugger all, but angiotensin 1 now is floating through the bloodstream until it comes across an enzyme called ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme, which is produced by a whole bunch of tissues in the body, but mainly the lungs. And ACE turns angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, and angiotensin 2 is one of the most potent vasoconstrictors in the entire body. And that means if you constrict blood vessels, you increase the resistance, increasing the blood pressure. And therefore, this is the one of the major outcomes of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Now, importantly, and this is interesting, is that angiotensin 2 can further stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. And so it can lead to further increases in blood pressure. So one of the ways that angiotensin 2 increases blood pressure outside of the vasoconstriction is... It travels up through the bloodstream and we know there's the blood-brain barrier and most things can't get across. But at the third ventricle, there's this area where the blood-brain barrier is pretty poor and angiotensin 2 can get across and it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. Again, increasing blood pressure. So that's one way that angiotensin 2, two ways actually, generalized vasoconstriction and stimulating the sympathetic nervous system. But it also does a bunch of other stuff. It releases aldosterone from the adrenal gland that travels back to those tubules and says, hey, don't pee out that sodium. Throw it back into the body for me. And if you throw sodium back in the body, water follows. And therefore, you increase the blood volume. And like we said with the blood pressure equation, you increase volume of blood, you increase blood pressure. And then finally, it can go to the hypothalamus, the angiotensin 2, goes to the hypothalamus and releases what you Americans call vasopressin or what us- In that accent. It, yeah, depending if you're vasopressin. Where's that? Yeehaw. That's Texas. Anyway. Um, we apologize. Yeah, I'm so uh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Everyone's turned off now. Uh, ADH is what we call it, antidiuretic hormone, which does something similar to aldosterone, but instead of throwing sodium back, it just throws the water back into the body from the kidneys. Increasing blood volume, increasing blood pressure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So the reason why this whole system's super important to talk about is because in one of our future episodes where we talk about antihypertensive drugs or blood pressure medications. We'll focus on this particular mechanism. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's important. So that's the um, role of the kidneys when it comes to maintaining blood pressure or at least increasing blood pressure. Or primary hypertension. And did you know, sorry, just to interrupt, that the kidneys of, of hypertensive animals, right? If what does you t- that mean? If you've got animals that have high blood pressure, 
Okay. Take the kidneys out of them, transplant them into animals that don't have high blood pressure. It gives them high blood pressure. Really? So there is something. What animals are you talking about here? Doesn't It's none of your business, <laughs> right? But there is something about the kidneys and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that is probably an important cause of essential or primary hypertension. We don't know exactly what it is that's happening here. One or more of these aspects of this system is going on, but we don't know what. Well, in that case then, um, the next category I think I'm just going to throw in, which is genetics. All right. And this is just kind of polymorphisms where- What's a polymorphism, it, I think Did you do your PhD in no, genetics? But you've just spoken for the last 20 minutes, so I'm not <laughs> going to let you- Come in. But basically these are individuals that have maybe an upregulation in certain genes that may, as a result, um, lead to things like just more amounts of angiotensinogen being released or the type of angiotensin 2 receptor that um, angiotensin 2 binds to may be more sensitive or there may just be more of them um, and therefore the result is a greater sensitivity to these hormones that you spoke about mm. and therefore increased blood pressure. Do you know what the association is between COVID and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? Or didn't the SARS-CoV-2 bind to ACE2 receptors? Correct. What's the difference between ACE2 and the ACE that we just spoke about? So um, angiotensin-converting It's just a, a modification. does of, the opposite. Okay. So... ACE that we just spoke about, angiotensin-converting enzyme, converts angiotensin-1 to angiotensin-2. And yep. like we said, angiotensin-2 boosts blood pressure. But ACE2, which is where SARS-CoV-2 binds to, that reduces blood pressure. Came from does a the opposite. hypertensive bat. <laughs> Maybe. So there's questions now about the role that uh, SARS-CoV-2 can play in blood pressure and blood pressure control. And, and they were asking questions about, well, should hypertensive patients stop their high blood pressure medications if they get COVID-19 and they didn't know and some studies came out. Well, basically, we don't know. The evidence is inconclusive at the moment, but um, they're still having a look. Okay. So anyway, just thought I'd throw that in. That's Good where segue. the ACE Good comes in. Um, vasculature? So that basically, um, yeah, yeah, keep going. So the <laughs> <laughs> so these are going to be well. When you talk about vascular, this is obviously going to feed into the arterial resistance. Yes. Right. Um, but this is distinct to what we spoke about with this, just the sympathetic effect on the vasculature. So this yes. is more inherent to the vascular itself. Yeah. So what? So more like local control. Yeah. Or or certain states that an individual may develop um, in their life mm. that would um, result in the the arterial pipes yeah. becoming either rigid mm. or at a smaller diameter. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. And so a classic one would Anything just- Anything that narrows the lumen, right? So that a classic example would be just aging, unfortunately. Um, the, the type of connective tissue in a blood vessel, in an artery, um, we would like it to be elastic, like, you know, um, what you would see in underpants- where, um, where they can- what, um, are you, what are you doing looking in underpants? <laughs> well, you know- What are you seeing they, in underpants? How they um, stretch but recoil. Oh, the underpants yeah. themselves. Yes. Sorry, right. because you did just say looking in underpants. Yeah, well, hobby of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that hobby is going to get you in a little bit of trouble, I think. Um, so we know- what I'm meaning there, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if we do. So the, I, elastic, um, the elastic material- <laughs> The elastic material in the um, 
Underpants, yeah. Let's yeah. move away from the underpants. So, we, yes, it's stretchy. You're basically which, saying which allows it to recall. So it makes it compliant. So as okay. you get older, you lose that, that elasticity, th- and you may replace it with. So the older people have tighter underpants. Yeah, more rigid underpants, right. more calcified undies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe the connective tissue changes from elastic tissue mm. to more collagen-like tissue. Okay. And collagen we know is kind of like scar tissuey. Now collagen's good. In certain other Is that why environments. You've been singing scar tissue this past week. Why what? You've been singing scar tissue by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, you sung it just before. Oh, no, that, that was road tripping. That was road tripping. Sorry. Yeah. Um, anyway, so collagen as a connective tissue is more for tensile strength. So we use that in like ligaments. Yeah. Not so good for arteries. Probably so not. So what that would result in is an artery that is more um, rigid. rigid and not forgiving. Yeah. And so that can then lead to a bump up in pressure. Now, if you further that with a process that we've done a podcast on, atherosclerosis, mm. and you throw things into the blood vessel that makes the blood vessel, you know, rock-like, mm. and this could be calcium, that would also change- and Your arteries. The, We're talking about you as an example in the atherosclerosis episode. Probably right. Um, would make also the blood vessels sm- smaller in diameter yeah. and- um, less compliant, and right. these things would increase uh, arterial resistance and therefore blood pressure. And in- interestingly, the the problem here is that um, this can be a cause of high blood pressure, but can also be a, feeding back onto be a result of it too, yeah. right? Which is an issue because it's this perpetuating self perpetuating yeah, issue. So the stiffening, like you said, of these large conduit arteries that usually happens in arteries like the aorta and coronaries and and carotids and things like that. Um, like you said, caused by aging, obesity can do it. Diet. Um, I mean, and this is where the environmental factors still going. Okay, uh, aging, smoking. Things like that. So, yeah, like you said, these are the environmental factors that come into play. But it's not just the stiffening, Matthew, of these large arteries. It's also other structural perturbations that can occur that narrow the lumen of even like smaller vessels like the arterioles, those that have smooth muscle. So so you can – anytime you have muscle, you can get muscular hypertrophy, right? Uh, And that's if you – Why are you looking at yourself in the mirror? Oh, just because I look really good today. And um, the choice of singlet was good. Um, I, I know you keep telling me not to wear singlets to work, but I keep thinking it's a Especially good decision. just a podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, but these structural perturbations are associated with uh, smooth muscle hypertrophy within the vasculature. So if you think about it, anything that stimulates a muscle to constantly contract is going to, over time, stimulate it to hypertrophy to get thicker. And so if you constantly have the central sympathetic nervous system innovating these blood vessels, if you've got angiotensin 2 constantly talking to them, if you've got catecholamines like noradrenaline talking to them, oxidative stress, inflammation, all of these things over time can lead to these smooth, the smooth muscles in these arterioles to hypertrophy and get thicker. Now the problem is you think, well, it's just a better muscle. It's just better at constricting and dilating. No, what it does is it becomes so thick that it narrows the hollow inside and then increases the resistance. So these are also ways. And in actual fact, some studies have shown that retinal vessels, so those in your eyes, may be used as early predisposing markers because it's really easy to look at these blood vessels in your eyes and have a look at the narrowing of those vessels. So they're trying to train uh, artificial intelligence to do this 
as an early marker for hypertension. Well, we do the same um, within diabetic neuropathy. So um, different disease, obviously, but the eyes are affected in this disease state. And so the blood vessels, but also the neurons within the eye um, will have changes. Yeah. And at this point in time, the individual may not be aware of any complications associated with that, mm. but you could look in their eyes and see structural changes. And that again is a good indication of, well, the system is slowly becoming problematic, yeah. but these are really early changes that you could possibly pick up that you could hopefully do something about before more serious complications occur down yeah, the track. Absolutely. And, you know, Interventions, I know we're going to be talking about interventions in another episode, but it's really important to note that pharmacological interventions, certain drugs are quite successful interventions, but also environmental uh, and lifestyle change interventions are extremely successful. Exercise, for example, and diet changes, really successful ways to even manage essential and prime. So not even knowing what the cause is, changing diet and exercising can be beneficial to your blood pressure. Well, this is a good segue because the next topic is going to be talking about sodium. Well, it's almost as though I did it on purpose, which I didn't. So, <laughs> so this is an interesting one. This was sort of going in and out of- So this is how you handle sodium. How do you handle sodium? Uh, not well. With not an well. iron fist? It's, it's pretty, yeah, that's right. It's a, a pretty messy character, sodium. sodium. So you have to handle it pretty um, heavily. Okay, so not sure what Matt's referring to, but what I would like to say is that sodium is, at least when it's- A rough character. When it's in the fluid of your body, it's an ion, which is Na+. It's got a positive charge, right? Now, the thing is that your body is mostly water and water has slight charges too. And we know that charges like charges. And so the point here is that wherever the sodium goes in your body, water's going to follow. So if you ingest a sodium-heavy meal- you're going to have bag a bag of chips. Bag of chips. Yep. Potato chips. Yeah. Or salt and vinegar. Yeah. Like a Hessian bag of chips, like Matt would eat most evenings. Um, <laughs> or like a tub, a tub of salt that you swim into most evenings. Um, if you ingest <laughs> a lot of salt, it's going to end in your bloodstream. Now, the thing is that if there's a lot of salt in the bloodstream, it's going to pull water towards it. And you're going to have a lot of water in your bloodstream. So your blood volume goes up. And again, the blood pressure equation, volume goes up, blood pressure goes up. Now, the thing is this, generally our kidneys are quite good. We evolved in the seas, in the salty brine of the Speak oceans. Speak <laughs> And with ha- our kidneys have evolved to handle sodium really well, generally speaking. And so if we just increase the sodium, we excrete the sodium using our kidneys. But there seems- And I think those um, animals have longer loops of Henle. Excuse me? Yeah, longer loops of Henle. So- Of the, the nephron. Yeah, of the nephron. So yeah. the more kind of saltier potential environment or less water, you have a longer nephron to be able to handle this. Anyway, keep yeah. going. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good segue. I'm so glad you brought it up. Mm. Um, <laughs> Uh, I lost track. Oh, yes. So um, handling that sodium. So you just pee that sodium out and then you pee the fluid out and then it drops the blood pressure back, right? Um, But some people don't necessarily handle salt very well and we call them salt-sensitive people. And these salt-sensitive people, um, their blood pressure rises quite significantly with salt intake, which also means their blood pressure drops quite significantly with a reduction in salt intake. And so this might be a dietary intervention is 
managing salt. Now, the exact mechanism is actually uh, more extensive than just- And the kidney. Salt increases fluid, increases blood pressure. There's actually, uh, there's actually more. It's got to do with the way the kidneys excrete the salt, whether you've got a predisposition genetically to not handle the salt very well. But what we know is a couple of things is that- um, Salt sensitivity is present in about 50% of hypertensive people, right? And primary? About, primary. Okay. Yeah. And about 25% of normotensive people, so people who don't have hypertension, are also salt sensitive. Again, this simply just means that when they ingest salt, their blood pressure significantly changes. But, so it goes up. It goes up. Transiently during that bucket of chips. That's right. That's right. Um, strangely, salt sensitive people... Um, their vasculature isn't as dynamic as others in regards to being able to change appropriately, narrowing or dilating in response to this salt um, to try and manage the blood pressure changes. So for those who aren't salt sensitive, the increase in salt and increase in volume may mean they can very quickly change the diameter of their blood vessels to compensate the blood pressure changes. But the salt sensitive people are don't. So, which means that salt sensitive people, it's not just the volume. It's also the downstream effects of how their body tries to respond to the volume changes to try and mitigate the blood pressure changes. And in addition, the salt can go straight to your brain too and trigger the sympathetic nervous system. Oh, like through the osmoreceptors in your hypothalamus? Exactly. Okay. And so you can have a sympathetic response as well, which increases blood pressure. Oh, okay. While the kidneys are trying to do catch that. up, yep. you've got blood pressure increases. And again, transient, for most people, it's transient, right? I could give you a salty soup and give me a salty soup, measure our blood pressures, they'll both go up. But if one of us is salt sensitive, it may take a lot longer for that to go down again, right? Because of the way we handle that salt. And so again, one of the interventions that um, is utilized is reducing salt. The difficult thing is, is you can't... You don't really know, there's no objective measure that you can do in a doctor's office that says that you're salt sensitive. Yeah, true. Right? So it's not like- yeah, Hence why this is primary, I guess. Exactly. I can't, it's not like I can take your blood and go, yep, you're salt sensitive. Or even, I mean, besides reduce salt in your diet, you can't really do anything about it anyway. And that's right? why the general consensus is you just tell hypertensive patients to reduce their salt intake if possible. Because the harm of reducing salt is minimal- compared to the possible damage that can be caused by if somebody's possibly salt sensitive. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Um, so yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add for essential or primary hypertension? I think we've covered, the, the, the main other part is just the environmental, but we spoke about that pretty early on. That yeah. just comes down to stress, obesity, smoking, physical inactivity, like you said, salt consumption and age, but they all fit into the other components yeah somewhat anyway yeah so i think it's time to move to secondary what do we think i think that is awesome so with secondary hypertension this is hypertension where there is a known or recognizable cause for the elevation of blood pressure and because its prevalence is low like five percent of all hypertensive cases it's not always cost effective or worth the time to do you know a big 
Diagnostic. Diagnostic work. Exploration. Workout. Yeah, exactly. For every person that comes in with hypertension. Because the outcome's the same, right? You just exactly. use drugs to manage it. And there's so many people coming in with hypertension, right? But there are clues that a clinician can use to sort of figure out whether, oh, maybe this person does have a secondary cause of hypertension. Because if they do have it- Then you could probably explore it to reverse it. Yeah, exactly. Or remove it. So- what are some of these clues, right? So one of which is something called resistive hypertension or resistant hypertension. Where or refractive. Oh, is that another name for it? Yeah. Where it remains elevated even if they're on up to three different antihypertensive drugs. Okay, so they might come into the clinic, the, the general practitioner just sees it as hypertension, yeah. puts them on meds, doesn't at this point doesn't care too much if it's primary or secondary, just throws some meds at them, but yep. they're not responding to the meds. So right. The blood pressure stays high. And that's even if one of them's a diuretic. Okay. Right. So, but I thought, you mean one of, I thought you mean one of the, the patient or the. <laughs> no, the drug that they're taking. Okay. Um, now, another clue could be if the hypertension develops in somebody who's younger than 30, but they don't have the risk factors. So, hypertension does exist in people under 30, definitely, but they've generally. You got mean primary? Some. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But here we're looking at secondary potential clues. So, for so secondary. younger people come in with hypertension. It, but they don't have the risk factors. So the, the, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, if they've got severe hypertension, um, but it's also associated with some end organ damage, so maybe acute kidney injury, some degree of like cardiac hypertrophy or heart failure and edema associated with it. So they've got these other symptoms associated with an end organ failure. Okay. That could be a clue. Um, Hypertension, that's associated with electrolyte problems. So the electrolytes are out of whack. Okay. Right? Um, maybe if the age of onset is before puberty, yeah, that's probably too young to have some sort of essential or primary hypertension. Uh, and another one is uh, what's called a non-dipping or reverse dipping hypertension. So generally speaking, normal hypertension, if I were to do your blood pressure- Hypertension when they go swimming. <laughs> no, not, not skinny dipping. Uh, <laughs> If, so right now, if I were to do your blood pressure, it's what, quarter to 11 in the morning, it's going to be at a particular level. If I do it at night time, it's likely going to be lower. So your blood pressure dips at night time. But if your blood pressure doesn't end up dipping at night time, or it actually goes up, it's called non-dipping when it doesn't change, or reverse dipping where it goes up at night time. So if this is something that happens consistently, then this could be an indication of secondary. Okay, um, so you'd have to do it like a 24-hour... Mm. blood pressure assessment to, to see how it changes through the day. That's right. Okay. And then finally, one could be rapid onset. So over weeks to months, their blood pressure just keeps going up and up and up and up. Or they have, they've had normal blood pressure, but all of a sudden they've just developed this hypertension out of nowhere. That's right. And so all of these could be clues that the clinician could use to identify whether they've got a secondary cause. Now, what is the cause? That's the question. And I've got a little- uh, Mnemonic. Acronym. Oh, we, is it a mnemonic or an acronym? No, it's, a, it's an acronym because I don't have another word for each of these. I could. I could make one, but I don't have one. Okay. But the acronym is REVO, R-E-V-O. Renault. Nope, REVO. <laughs> don't ruin it for people. Uh, they're going to think Renault and they're not going to remember what N would be. But it's REVO, R-E-V-O. We could add one. No, let's not. Okay, let's not do that. So we've got renal causes, uh, endocrine causes, vascular causes, and other. And I know other's a bit of a of a giveaway because I could include include anything. But renal causes. So something going wrong with the kidney? Yeah. 
We've spoken about the kidney before, right? And it's involved in blood pressure, right? The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Yep. It needs a certain amount of blood to filter. And if that drops, it needs to kick things up a little bit, increase pressure to increase filtration. But if the kidney's buggered, if it's not working properly, like they've got chronic kidney disease Disease. or renal artery stenosis, it's not filtering the blood, right? Yeah. So what might it do? Well, it's going to compensate for that because in a way it is – it it – kind of holds if you if you look at blood pressure as a homeostatic mechanism it's kind of the receptor and the control center yeah true and so it would think oh it got got a problem with blood pressure here i'll try to deal with this and release renin essentially yeah, so yeah, if you got products so if you got chronic kidney disease um, your gfr is going to be dropping that's glomerular filtration rate folks and then as a result it's thinks there's a problem with the way that the fluid is moving through the nephron. Yeah. Therefore, it will release renin as a result and then blood pressure will go up. Yep. Or as you said, renal artery stenosis. This is just a problem with the, the big vessel bringing blood to the whole kidney. And so, again, the kidney goes, oh, we're, we're just not getting blood. So, therefore, the, the, whole body must, narrowing, right? the, the whole body must have an issue. So, yeah. we'll just counter this and, again, release renin. Okay. So, that could be a renal cause. Yep. So again, secondary, endocrine. So there's a couple. There's quite of, a few here. Yeah, there's some hormones that can be released that can increase blood pressure, and often them often they're the hormones that are associated already that we've spoken about yeah. with increasing blood yeah. pressure, but also think sympathetic nervous system as, as well, and and the hormones associated there. So for example, primary aldosteronism. We've spoken about aldosterone. What does it do briefly? Basically, the primary function of it is to it, it locks onto the distal end of the nephron and enhances the sodium reabsorption back into the blood. And wherever sodium goes, water follows. Yeah, that's right. So promoting in, an increase in blood volume, increasing stroke volume, increasing blood, blood pressure. pressure. Right. Yep. So um, this would be a tumour in that part of the adrenal gland that releases aldosterone. Perfect. Yep. Well, not perfect. That's horrible. But that's a- And that's why it's primary because the tumour is- at that region. Oh, good point. Because it could be a secondary aldosteronism and we're not talking secondary hypertension, we're talking secondary aldosteronism where the tumour is elsewhere, which can increase the release of aldosterone at the adrenal gland, maybe ACTH at the hypothalamus, pituitary, whatever. Anyway, so one endocrine cause could be primary aldosteronism, increasing total blood volume, increasing blood pressure. Another could be Cushing disease or Cushing syndrome, which is a hypercortisolism. So an increased cortisol release, again from the adrenal gland. So similar cause to that of of primary aldosteronism yep. um, and cortisol stimulates it's that stress hormone mm-hmm. it gets triggered in times of stress generally but also helps stimulate sympathetic nervous system yep. and increases blood pressure yeah and then you've but got probably h- also cushion i'd imagine if it's primary as well it there'll probably be some release of the mineral corticoid as well so you, well that's true it'll go together absolutely true yeah um and hyper and hypothyroidism what's going on here well hyper we know that that has a role, I shouldn't say hyper, let's just go back to T3, T4, which are the hormones released from the thyroid gland. They have a role in kind of um, upregulating or enhancing um, the the effect of the sympathetic nervous system in the body, bumping up your metabolism and tissues that need to be used with a faster metabolism. So your heart being one of those organs. So if you have too much of these thyroid hormones, it will kind of make the heart more sensitive to the sympathetic nervous system neurotransmitters. Gotcha. And so it therefore makes the heart probably in 
increase its speed and contractility. So increase heart rate or increase contractility, you increase blood pressure. So there's the equation. What about hypo? Um, hypo well, I, I probably should go back to hypo quickly. Okay. Um, we spoke about its effect on the heart, but it also has an effect on blood vessels and it seems to do the opposite for some reason, that um, it causes more vasodilation than vasoconstriction. So even in hyper? In hyper, yeah. So you've got heart rate increasing, contractility increasing, but generally when those things happen, you'd have blood vessels contracting to increase blood pressure because yeah. it's dilating. So there'd actually be a drop to some degree in peripheral vascular resistance with hyper. But it seems to be that But maybe it's countered the, by the heart being yeah. more in effect. And that so, may overwhelm yeah. still increasing blood pressure. So then that does that mean in hypo- It's the opposite. Right. That the, the increased systemic vascular resistance from the vasoconstriction of the hypo state yeah. overwhelms the s- slowed heart rate. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Okay. And one more. Well, actually, there's two more endocrine. Yeah. Do you, do you want to mention a couple? And one is adrenal hyperplasia. Yeah. So if you have a tumor on the adrenal gland, so adrenal medulla, which is the pheochromocytoma. Right. So that would just be a tumor in the, the deepest part of the adrenal gland. And th- those releases the adrenaline. Adrenaline. Hence adrenal gland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we don't have to talk about that much more. We no. can stimulate can, sympathetic nervous system. If you throw out heaps of noradrenaline into the body or adrenaline, you're going to have a, a profound sympathetic nervous system response. Increasing BP. Yep. And what's the other one? The other one is if you had a tumour in the parathyroid glands. Let's see if you can work this one out. So if you throw a lot of parathyroid out, what would that do to – what would the parathyroid do for your homeostasis in the body? Parathyroid is associated with calcium homeostasis. It plays an important role in increasing blood calcium. So if your blood calcium is low, parathyroid hormone gets released – that does a number of different things. One, um, it helps the reabsorption of calcium uh, from bone. So it increases osteoclasts, mm-hmm. breaking bone down, releasing calcium. Increases the absorption of calcium in the intestines yep. and increases the reabsorption of calcium at the kidneys right. and does this synergistically with vitamin D. Right. So if you really ramp this up, yeah. so you now you have a huge amount of calcium in the blood, what do you think? Well, it's an ion. It has a charge. And wherever these charges go, water follows. So does it then carry water with it? It's going to be more to do with the calcium effect on smooth muscle. Oh, okay. So that means the calcium effect on smooth muscle is increased contractility of the heart, but also constrict the blood vessels. There we go. There you go. Interesting. Okay. So that is hyperparathyroidism, is it? Yeah. And that's, that's all the endocrine that I've got down anyway. Yeah, me too. So vascular. Yep. The vascular change is generally anything that happens with a narrowing of a blood vessel yeah. uh, anatomically, which could be a coarctation of the aorta. Yeah, so, so this is generally a restriction or a narrowing after the big the first big vessels that come off the arch of the aorta. And can I ask so, you a question? I don't know if you know the answer. Right. difference between a coarctation and a stenosis. Coarctation is that em- embryologic? Is that yeah, like maybe it's anatomical a, and stenosis, it, it, has, it happens... Over time, through yeah, environment? that would be probably my guess. Yeah, okay, sorry. So, it's, so coaction might be a, a congenital. Yeah, that's what I meant. And then, yeah, it develops over time. But that's a good question. Okay, so obviously the narrowing of the blood vessel, increasing resistance, increasing blood pressure. Um, so just with that though, yeah. it's interesting because it's coming later. So you, you're potentially. What does that mean? Well, it just means that the later the, compared to. So where the the narrowing is in the aorta, mm. okay, means it's. Um, 
past the first three vessels coming off the arch. Oh, okay, okay. And so that means the lower body is getting a lower blood pressure. Yeah. Okay. But the upper body is getting presumably a normal blood pressure. Or okay. elevated maybe. Well, not at this point. Oh, okay, okay. And so the lower half is getting a low blood pressure. So the kidneys go, hey, we're getting oh. – and so we'll – let's do the RAS system. Mm. And so that's getting bumped up. But yeah. but the upper part of the body is going, why wow, we get such a big high blood pressure? So the baroreceptors and so forth. So there's How this do you co- measure that though? Because if the calcitation's before the brachial artery and they're doing a blood pressure measurement and they go, oh, your blood after pressure's the, fine. After the brachial artery or the, the pipe going out to the brachial artery. So potentially you would have a difference with blood pressure between your arm and your leg. Right. Yeah. Right. I suppose that, yeah, of course. So they'll do a... So you would find so would it be a normal BP of the arm, but an elevated, or, but a decreased BP of the leg, or an well, elevated of the arm and normal of the leg? That's a good question. Um, it depends on what yeah, stage we're, it's we're, and how it's counteracted each other. But in yeah. theory, you would have a lower blood pressure past the coaction, yeah, uh, compared to above it. But the way that it compensates may how cause interesting, yeah. how interesting. So that's vascular, and then there's other causes. So other causes can be things like sleep apnea, it could be pregnancy, it could be probably one of the most common which is drug induced. So sleep apnea Maddie. So people who so firstly, what's sleep apnea and how could that possibly increase somebody's blood pressure? Well, simply sleep apnea just means you go into periods which is the apnea of um, decreased ventilation whilst you're sleeping. Right. And that this could be obstructive which is your airway closes in when you go into a deep, deeper level of sleep mm-hmm. or it could be centrally driven, which is a problem with your um, respiratory center regulating your breathing cycling when you're sleeping. But yeah. in any case, the result would be when you're going to sleep, your breathing would diminish and you would get a drop in uh, O2 and an increase in CO2. Now, the body generally will arouse to kind of counter this. So yep. you kind of go from a deep sleep back into a... So have a crappy sleep. And so you're just doing this through the night. And so the quality of the sleep would, would drop. I think you'd probably activate the sympathetic nervous system more frequently. So that would be the blood pressure. But right. just because the quality of the street, sleep is so crap, I just don't That affects think, everything, right? And I just, I just think you're not getting the, rest the you need. restorative aspects of what a sleep is. And that would also probably have an effect on blood pressure. Cool. That's sleep apnea. Pregnancy. Why would somebody who's pregnant have increased blood pressure? Well, I think ge- not talking preeclampsia here, which yeah. is a separate topic. I think generally that just the blood volume increase mm. would have an effect. But why then, is your blood volume increased? Well, you've got another um, thing that's growing within you, a uh, baby, I believe it's called. <laughs> but so it requires this, this, more blood too, right? That's right. It needs more blood itself, um, and then the hormonal effect yeah. from um, being pregnant would have. Um, I think it has an effect on edema, so you have just more fluid in your body. And probably the way that interacts with the sympathetic nervous system as well. Cool, cool. And then finally, drug-induced. Now, there's so many medications or drugs, whether it be illicit or not. Cocaine. Um, Okay, cocaine's one of them, uh, which can increase your blood pressure where you just get rid of the drug, you get rid of the hypertension. Uh, Cocaine being one, obviously loves playing around with the adrenaline uh, that's available or nor- noradrenaline, norepinephrine in the body, um, increasing its availability, increasing the sympathetic effects. Is that generally the mechanism for 
in regards to- At least to, the stimulants. Yes. Yeah. For those sti- that's right, the methamphetamines, amphetamines yeah. and so forth, um, increasing sympathetic effect. But then you've got you know certain drugs that can increase sodium reabsorption. So again, if you're more sodium in the body, more water's in the body, higher blood volume, higher blood pressure. Um, and even herbal remedies have a whole range of effects. Um, I think like St. John's wort maybe, just off the top of my head, might increase blood pressure, but there's a whole range. And they can also- play around with other medications that you're on, which yeah. can also increase your, point. your blood pressure. So there's a whole range of just a couple of medications. This is not a drug, but just a couple of new, neurological conditions that will have an effect with blood pressure, which I think is oh, yeah. uh, important to note. Uh, if you have an increased intracranial pressure yep. within your uh, skull. Yeah, that's where um, the cranium is. <laughs> that what essentially happens is this um, triad comes about to mm-hmm. try to counter the low blood flow into because your because your skull is a fixed system or a, a fixed what would you say vault it's a cranial vault yep and um, if something increases the contents within the skull so that could be um, blood or tissue mm-hmm. what's the third one I always miss this one um, uh, you can have an- or maybe just CSF CSF yeah that's right so so blood tissue or Cerebral spinal fluid. So if one of those three increase, um, the pressure within your skull increases. Do you which, remember what the triad's called? Is it uh, Cushing. Cu- yeah, Cushing triad, yeah. that's right. So what then happens is you have less blood flow into your brain. Yeah. Okay, and so what then happens is the body goes, we need to counter this. How do we counter this is we'll whack up your blood pressure. So if you, and then the triad being, systemic blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes down, and your respirations become disordered yeah and that's the th- that's the three okay. but if you get this increase in um blood pressure particularly after head injury that's an indication you might have increased intracranial pressure yep the other one which is more closer to some of the research that we do with spinal cord injury particularly if the spinal cord injury is around mid thoracics um you could develop an autonomic dysreflexia which is again a bit like the coaction where half your body is telling you one thing and the other half is doing it and so you can get a super high blood pressure from something fairly innocuous like um extended extended bladder or something that's happening in the lower region yeah absolutely and then you can get a blood pressure over 200 wow wow and you don't want that because that can be life-threatening yep uh just just quickly or do you have more neuro no, that's that's it. I just wanted to talk about some more drugs because I think these are some important drugs that can cause hypertension. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, right? They block prostaglandins, which remember prostaglandins dilate blood vessels. So a chronic uh, use of those can constrict blood vessels or worsen existing hypertension. I spoke about sodium-containing drugs, um, antidepressants, such as those that increase the amount of serotonin and noradrenaline, yeah. your sympathetic nervous yeah. system. Uh, decongestants, because they contain phenylephrine or pseudoephedrine, yeah, which yeah. is obviously sympathomimetic. Um, you've got, yes, herbal supplements, St. John Wort, I did say that. Um, these other ones I've never heard of before, ephedra and yohimbine, never heard of those. Uh, corticosteroids. That makes sense. Predizone, yeah, that, that goes with like that. that goes with cushion syndrome. That's right. Uh, and mineralocorticoids, same thing. Um, oh, here's one we forgot about. So you did talk about cocaine, and we spoke about methamphetamines, but um, chronic use of EPO, erythropoietin, just because thick, thicker blood, thicker blood, increasing vascular resistance, uh, and yeah, there's a couple of others, but there we go.
Now, management of hypertension. How is it managed? Well, how- let's leave manage. I think basically we'll do management management in the next podcast when we do um, the, the drugs. drugs. But just really quickly, I'll, I'll just go through some of the significant complications with unmanaged hypertension. Oh, so this okay. is long-standing hypertension. Yes. For many years, if it's not well managed, what are the body, body parts, body regions that can potentially – become problematic. Uh, I walk in, I've got hypertension. My blood pressure is 160 over 100. It's been like that for a year now. It's unmanaged. I haven't bothered getting it sorted. What could be some of the problems that I'm experiencing associated with this hypertension? This hypertension is a risk factor for what? Okay, let's go, what, he- Matt, let's go head to toe. Okay, start, start at my head. What's start, going on? Start what with your brain. Wrong? Start with your brain. Yeah. Um, Hypertension, long-standing hypertension is a, it's a quite a significant risk factor. It's the, the largest risk factor for hemorrhagic stroke. So this is stroke where the blood vessel breaks in the brain and bleeds out. So it's just because a lot of pressure in the hose. Yeah, but also just the changing of the blood vessel over time with such high strief, uh, yeah. shear force. It just changes its tissue composition, which yeah. then leads to its likelihood of rupturing. And you can also think about when a blood vessel bifurcates or splits in two, which it does all the time, you know, when it, where it branches, the branching point is the weakest point of the vessel as well. And you can get aneurysms in those areas and that's a higher likelihood of it bursting and yeah, bleeding out. The others would just be small vessel hemorrhages, which aren't the same as the big um, hemorrhagic strokes, but still having those minor bleeds is obviously going to cause problems over time. Um, you could check on this through MRI scanning. That would be one way of looking at the um, the vasculature of the brain and whether it has vulnerabilities. Uh, whilst we're still in the head, we might as well just look at the eyes quickly. Yeah, let's do it. And so the retina can also have changes within the vasculature at the back. And oh, so yeah. if that is affected, then your vision will start to deteriorate over time. Probably runs fairly closely with diabetes as well. So this is a retinopathy. And it's just because both are susceptible to the, the, the blood vessels or the vasculature yeah. of the retina are, both, are susceptible to both hypertension and- Chronic effects of uh, hyperglycemia. Yep. 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 Going slightly inferiorly, yeah. we get to the heart. Okay. So probably- What's the, wrong with my heart? The main things that will go wrong with the heart- um, with long-standing hypertension would be ischemic heart disease. So that's the anginas and the MIs. Yep. Okay. We'd also have, if you've if your heart has had to work against a, a high blood pressure for many, many years, this is afterload, it's going into hypertrophic state and then that ultimately will eventually lead to it going into a failure. failure. So enlarged heart, cardiomegaly, maybe one, maybe one ventric- ventricular wall is thicker than another, maybe both yep. are thick. Alters the way it contracts, alters the way it fills, alters the way it gets fed. Yep. And there can be a whole range of effects there. Yep. Then we go, keep going inferiorly, we go to the kidneys. So the kidneys would then potentially in, induce a, a nephropathy. Which what about w- the vessels? Are we getting- oh, yeah, That's going to be the last one. Sorry. The nephropathy, which is going to be basically kidney changes due to the hypertension. Again, this is one of the biggest causes of nephropathy, which is an end stage or leading to an end stage Renal failure. So is this because the blood pressure is so high it's over-filtrating and it damages the no, filtration membrane? Remember, again, the kidney has its autoregulation. So if it's uh-huh. the pressure's too high going into the kidney, it will 
do certain compensatory mechanisms. Biogenic to, response yeah. constricts it. But because a bit like what we saw in the brain blood vessels, the same thing will happen in the blood vessels in the, in the kidneys, particularly the glomerulus. It will change its structure, the way that it operates, the mesangial cells, all those things. And that affects the way that it processes filtrate and so forth, which then leads to. So it's the remodeling that occurs correct. in response. And again, it's a bit like what we spoke about with the eye. It goes hand in hand with diabetes as well. It's a different mechanism, but the nephropathy is an outcome that's right. not a good one. And then finally, we look at the arteries. So the effect in different parts of the body or different arteries in the body. So something you might have heard of is the AAA. So, oh, yes. Don't so want that. Did you see one on Twitter the other day? that I it didn't. was? Um, I posted it for my students. It was probably the size of... Firstly, it's an abdominal aortic aneurysm. So the the video was the the vessel being exposed, but by looking oh, at I it, I did see it. It looks it looked like a kind of a baby's head. That's it how big like it was. It looked like the baby's still in the um the sack. Yeah, that's what. And it so like. it was just this huge bulbous structure oh that actually gosh. had blood vessels around the blood vessel oh. itself. And so it how do you was, fix that? How do you it was fix highly that? dilated. Uh, I oh think they gosh. just put a Net an internal it. structure in it that kind of supports and prevents it rupturing. Oh gosh. Anyway, you don't want that because obviously uh, any damage to the aorta is having the blood from the left-hand side of the heart go straight to it. So you lose blood very quick. Rest of the body doesn't get fed. You die very quickly for yeah. bursts. So that's a triple yeah. um, A. Other ones you could get a dissecting aorta. So this is where blood kind of shears from the high, high pressure shears in between the tunicas, the layers, and the blood starts to go and dissects, Behind. I don't know which layers, but let's just say presumably the, the uh, tunica intima and the media. Yeah. And it separates those two and just runs down the length of the vessel. I don't Ugh. know how far, but that's a dissecting yeah. aneurysm. Then you have peripheral arterial disease, which generally affects the legs. Yep. And this is just essentially a significant atherosclerotic plaque that then s- prevents the the good perfusion of blood into the legs and then you get things like claudication, which is pain on exercise. It becomes weak pulse, um, pale, cool and all these – and the increased likelihood of getting um, necrotic toes and so forth. Wow. And the, f- the last one would be carotid um, issues. Mm. <laughs> so just the large artery yeah. changes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that main- also include atherosclerosis of those larger vessels too, not just in the legs but also in the – those vessels, right? Yeah, it's usually associated with where the greatest shear force would be in yeah. in the arteries, and that's like you said, it's in the bifurcated areas or the areas where the highest velocity of blood flow would be. Mm. So that's the complications. My gosh, there's a lot. So you have to really keep the blood pressure under control, yes. and this is why it's called the silent killer, is because you don't necessarily know it. You've that's got right. it, and it could right. just operate for many, many years and wreak all that damage. And so this will lead us on to the treatment and management, which is going to be the medication, which stay tuned for our next podcast. That's right. Thank you, Maddie. And again, if you want to support us, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you are listening to us on. We have a, pod, uh, a YouTube channel called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. Please go and subscribe and like our videos. Leave really nice comments. Don't send us emails saying we hate you and you deserve a one-star Yeah, I should rating. stop sending those. I oh, know. It breaks my heart every time. Uh, we do this for free. We will endeavor to continue to do this for free. Uh, and all we desire is your support, love, agile and everlasting commitment to support us for the rest of your existence. But that's all. That's all we ask for. Um, 
Not and much. No, not much at all. Anyway, you guys uh, look after yourselves and Maddie. And oh. your blood pressure. And your blood pressure. And we'll see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.